0: Now, I think this might be an interesting exercise for all of us. Take a day, and as you go through your day, try to recognize how many different laws and rules govern our everyday life. It's a lot more than we probably realize. Thousands upon thousands, some written, some unwritten, some spoken, and some unspoken. And we know, of course, we know the big ones, the big laws that have, you know, uh, a criminal element to them. You can't steal, you can't murder, you know, the big ones. But even smaller ones, things we might take for granted, like if you, if today, go over to the Texaco without a shirt on and see what happens. Now, on the, on the door, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? That's a rule that we're all expected and obligated to follow. Um, so some really weird, and now this is also kind of fun, Google search strange or weird laws. Every state, every country has them. Some laws that were passed like 200 years ago and were never repealed for some reason, you know, like you, you, in, some, in certain places you can't let your donkey sleep in the bathtub. That's an action. That's, I, I looked that up. That's real. You can't spit in public after sunset in certain parts of the world, you know, things like that. I think we would, even though some of that is silly, in some laws we really treat more as suggestions, like the speed limit. The truth is, that wasn't meant to be funny, I mean, I'm <laughs> just telling it like it is. Um, we have to acknowledge, and I think we would, that, that laws and rules are generally good for us, right? They guide our behavior, they support and uphold our moral standards, they promote peace and human dignity, they establish justice and order for society. Laws and rules also govern pretty much everything about religion for most people. I try to say this with some frequency, that the most natural religious impulse we all have goes like this. God gives a law. Whatever we call it, five pillars we must uphold, an eightfold path we're supposed to follow, ten commandments to obey. And y'all, to the degree that we obey that law, God will bless us and give us his favor. He'll accept us. And so if you want to be a good person, If you want to be moral and religious, if you want to go to heaven, it's a simple recipe. Just obey God's law. And that's how almost all religious uh, 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 ideologies function. Everybody around the world basically lives upon those same standards. So you can imagine the shock in the first century when the followers of Jesus began going around the known world proclaiming a different message, a scandalous message. They were saying to everyone, listen, you receive God's acceptance and God's blessing not by your moral law-keeping, but by trusting in the grace of Jesus alone. Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again from the grave, he has achieved our righteousness for us, so that now by faith in him, we have eternal right standing with God as a free gift, something we could never earn through our moral law keeping. Now that's, y'all, that's the most glorious, most liberating message there ever was. But it's also a difficult message for human beings to stomach because it takes all of the emphasis away from what we do or what we're supposed to do. And it, in a sense, it kind of violates what's fair and what's right. If anything good comes my way, it's because I earned it. It's because I deserve it. And if I believe in a message of grace, a free gift, that seems to make good behavior kind of optional, doesn't it? I mean, does it really matter how a person lives if God doesn't take that into account, if he just gives us his favor for free? Doesn't that make all of God's law obsolete? See, that's the argument that the Apostle Paul dealt with his entire life in ministry. It's one of the main reasons he wrote this letter, the letter to the Galatians, and it's something that Paul had to fight tooth and nail to uphold, this message of grace as opposed to a message of law. And I just want to encourage us, right where we sit all these years later, it's a, it's a fight we still have to engage with today because our impulses haven't changed. Every morning, I wake up thinking that I've got to earn my way to God. It's the most natural thing in the world for us. And so, y'all, as we, as we walk through this letter... We we see Paul, he's tearing down brick by brick that false message of self-salvation to expose the true heart and the will of God. And so if you were with us last week, we saw from Galatians 3, Paul takes us all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, the first few pages of the Bible, where God chose Abraham and made Abraham a gospel promise. In you, Abraham, God said, All the nations of the world will be blessed, meaning it's always been God's plan to bring salvation to the whole world, not just to the Jews, the Israelites, but to the world, to us. And it's a plan that has been fulfilled in the sending of Jesus. So to those who insist, no, it's the law, it's the commands that set us right with God. Paul today is going to show us what the law looks like in proper perspective. And y'all, I'm going to just, you brought your knife and fork this morning, I hope. This is a little dense, okay? This is a challenge to us, these verses. But man, it's so wonderful to dig and to be willing to see what God's Word tells us. So look with me at Galatians 3, verse 15. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Let me give you a human example. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now this is a human example. Paul's looking to the world of human commerce. He's talking about a will and testament. And this is really neat for us because all these years later it's something that's still in effect. We all know what a will is and what it's for. And so I've got a will and it stipulates in that will, who, who's going to inherit my exorbitant wealth when I die? Well, y'all, you know, when, when the will was drafted I signed it qualified witnesses signed it And then a notary public signed it and sealed it. Why all the fuss for something like that? Because that means when it's that official, when it's that binding, there is no changing it. And that's Paul's point. Nobody but me has the authority to go back now and amend what has been ratified. Now, in the Bible, when we're given human analogies like this, it's always to show us how much more something is true of God. And so we need to see this. If, if human beings, if we honor our promises, our wills, our binding commitments, how much more does God honor his? That's the question. And see, so that's verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He, God, does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. See, when God made his promise to Abraham, the true focal point of that promise was always Jesus. And so when God says, in you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed, that doesn't mean that we all look to Abraham as our Savior. We don't find our salvation in him. Our salvation comes from the seed, the offspring of Abraham. And that is... Christ. And this is really an important point for us when we consider that God made a promise to Abraham. That promise was not conditioned on human fulfillment, which means neither Abraham nor his son Isaac nor his son Jacob or anybody else on down the line was going to bring that promise to fruition. Because in that case, it wouldn't have been a promise, it would have been a command. Go and do this, and this will be the outcome, the reward. But this promise that Paul speaks of, that God gave way back when, it's an unconditional promise. It doesn't depend on human fulfillment. It depends on God who promised to bring it to pass. And that's where verse 17 kind of encapsulates this, when Paul says, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later after the promise, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. We can take a step back and, and acknowledge something that's, that's true beyond this text. God never breaks his promises. And that ought to give us great security, great rest and hope in all of life. God never breaks a promise. Nor does God nullify his promises, meaning he changes his mind. He doesn't add to or subtract from his promises. And that's the point here. If the law, which was given to Moses, came in 430 years after that promise that God gave Abraham, the law cannot invalidate the covenant that God had already made. It simply makes no sense that the promise would be invalidated years later by something else God did and said. So there's a couple of threads here at work already in this this, um, argument that Paul's giving here. Paul is comparing all of this to a will, a document that promises an inheritance. And that's the language he uses in verse 18, what we just read. Paul calls the blessing of God's grace our inheritance. And so the question becomes, it's the, the gift and favor of God that comes down to his children, to those who belong to him. Does that inheritance come down to us through our obedience to the law, or does it come through the grace of God's promise? It has to be one or the other. It cannot be both. And so if we stand here and say God's inheritance, his favor, his blessing, his eternal uh, acceptance of us, if it only comes to those who keep the law, then we're hap- we have to say that God somehow has changed the terms on us. God has nullified his own promise. His previous covenant is now invalid, and a new standard has taken its place. It's no longer a promise. It's now a command. It's no longer unconditional. It's now conditioned upon your obedience to the new standard, your perfect obedience. Y'all, you know, uh, That classic U2 song called One, there's a part in that song where Bono says, you ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. And that would be kind of like what Paul's saying here. If somehow God gave a law that invalidated or superseded his prior covenant promise then it's like God inviting us into his presence, but you've got to crawl your way through the door. You've got to get your way in and subject yourself now to the old way of human earning rather than the new way of grace. And so the the law cannot undo the promise. For one, the promise outdates the law by almost 500 years. And secondly, it's the nature of God that's at stake. If God breaks his promises, he is no God at all. He's not worthy of our worship, and certainly we can't trust him, because who's to say he wouldn't pull the rug out again? Y'all, this inheritance, the grace of salvation in Jesus Christ, is a gift that is secured for us by God's promise. It's not a reward we have to earn through our obedience. And we will preach that message till we're blue in the face and dead in the ground, okay? And never apologize for it. We receive all of God's grace through faith. But here's where the, you know, there's a twist in the narrative where Paul is dealing with these detractors, people who are doubting and casting aspersions on him and his message, who would come in at this point and say, wait a minute, wait a minute why would God go to the trouble of giving the law at all in that case? And this would have been a sticking point for them. The fact that God gave the law to Israel all those years later, that is proof that the law is essential for us if we're going to be accepted, if we're going to be saved. If obedience to the Ten Commandments does not justify us before God, then what purpose does it serve at all? Why is it even there to begin with? And Paul, in his typical brilliant style, is prepared for this question. It's something, surely, he's dealt with already. He asks it himself in verse 19. Why the law, then? Answer, it was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Huh? <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned this as an aside last week, how the Bible does not insult our intelligence. But sometimes maybe we wish it would. Maybe we wish that uh, the Bible was always absolutely perfectly clear and obvious in its interpretation. Sometimes, y'all, we just have to really dig. And let's, let's just, let's, let's dig a little bit. This is dense, but it's wonderful. Paul asks the question, why did God give the law? What is its significance? What's the true purpose of it? And then he answers that question. He says the law was brought in to address our sins, but not in the way we might expect, and not for the purpose we might expect. Because, he tells us, the covenant of law was meant to be temporary and also inferior to the covenant of promise. And let's let's unpack that just a little bit. Paul says, the law was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. He's talking about Moses. Moses, to whom the law was given, he was a man who stood, in a sense, between God and the people of Israel. He was their intermediary, their go-between, the deliverer of the law. Until, Paul says, the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That's Jesus. So the law, of course, is serving a vital and necessary purpose, but Paul wants to make clear that the law was never meant to be an end in itself. It served in preparation for the coming of Christ. And, he says, a mediator like Moses is required when there are two parties involved. Moses stands between God and the people, as their mediator. Two parties. But Paul says God is only one, which means that in terms of the covenant promise, God spoke directly to Abraham, and God committed himself to fulfill his own promise unconditionally, without human supplement, without anything that we did in some some sense to earn our way into it, God said, I will make the promise and I will fulfill it. See, the law depends on a mediator. The promise does not. And so what Paul, I think, is saying here is that the covenant promise, the promise of grace, which comes unconditionally from God, it's not only unconditional, but it's also permanent. It's eternal. It brings us eternal life if we believe in Jesus. The covenant of law, by contrast, is conditional and it's temporary now Paul is smart enough to anticipate the arguments to this that if the law is inferior to the promise then the law surely serves no good purpose at all what's it even for or maybe worse than that the law is a bad thing because it actually confuses the promise and contradicts God's grace Why would God add it in if all it does is confuse us as to the terms of our religious life and acceptance before God? And so Paul, again, he asks the question that he wants to argue against. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? (laughs) No. May it never be, Paul says. (laughs) By no means. Y'all can participate. I appreciate that every now and then. Not... Not too much, okay, please, but within reason, I, I think it's pretty, pretty awesome. Thank you. May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Y'all, you know, the, the law of God is not contrary to God's promise. As if to say God is somehow divided, or he brought in something new that nullifies what, was, what, what preceded it. And the reason for this, Paul says, is that the law was not given the same purpose of the promise. I mentioned this last week. Obedience to God's law and faith in Jesus are not two different roads that will end up in the same destination. You just choose the one you prefer. That is not how it goes. No. If if we insist that somehow the law of God was given to fix us, then yes, there is a contradiction. Then there is a contrary nature to the law. Because the promise says God will do it for us by his grace, but then if the law comes in and says, no, things have changed, you must do it now by your own works. That's a contradiction, most certainly. But this is the point that Paul wants to keep driving home. This is the purpose for this complex argument, this complicated language. The law was never given to fix us, to save us, The law was not given because God made a mistake. The initial promise was now in jeopardy and God had to clean up the mess. No, the law was given, Paul says, for the sake of fulfilling the promise to us. The law comes in support of the promise. And we see that in verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the the true purpose of the law was not to fix our sin problem. It wasn't to take good people and polish us up and make us even better people. The true purpose, Paul says, was that the law would show us our utter sinfulness and lostness so that we might see God's grace and mercy as our only hope. One of the old commentators named F.F. Bruce said it like this, The law serves to confine all in the prison house of sin, from which there is no exit but the way of faith. The law serves to confine us all in in the prison of sin, And there is only one escape, and that is the way of faith, not works. So y'all, maybe if this makes it a little bit more practical, you might go to lunch today after church and walk upon a restaurant that's got the Ten Commandments out front. A lot of them do, and that's fine. That's great. Or you can turn to Exodus chapter 20 if you're so inclined, and you can read all about the Ten Commandments. We know at least generally what they say, if not having learned them by heart in elementary school. Okay, take the Ten Commandments. If you read those Ten Commandments, you're not reading God's recipe for your salvation. God did not give us the Ten Commandments expecting that by them we could all work our way up to heaven according to our ability to keep them and our sincerity in following them. And that's Paul's point here. The ultimate purpose of the commandments is not to save us, but to show us the perfect light of God's righteousness and how unrighteous we are, by contrast. And so in that case, the perfect and good commandments of God are like a prison to us. We're imprisoned because we're incapable of keeping them. Our sin holds us under what Paul calls the curse of the law, which is what we saw earlier in Galatians 3. The curse of the law. Because sinners cannot keep it, we are imprisoned under its consequences. That's his point. And, y'all, as terrible as that sounds, as bad news as that appears, it's actually a wonderful gift. And Paul here in Galatians 3 wants to see it as a gift, that our despair within this prison of sin has one resolute and clear purpose. So that, this is Paul's words, so that, purpose statement, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The law cannot save us. It was never meant to, but it can bring us to the only one who can. The only one who saves Jesus Christ is the end of the law. He's the goal of everything the law is meant to bring us to. So y'all, when Paul says, the law shuts us up under sin, it reveals our badness. He's not saying that the law itself is a bad thing. No, the law is perfect. But the law has a perfect intention, which is not to make people perfect, but to point us to a perfect Savior, to bring us to Christ. The prison of sin has one exit. It's the way of faith. If we try to dig ourselves out by our own good works, we'll only dig into the next cell. Faith alone frees us. And so when we come to a perfect Savior, Paul says, the law has achieved its one true purpose, its ultimate purpose. And he continues on, verse 23, but before faith came, so specifically for Jews who lived before Jesus or who have not yet heard the gospel, before faith came, he says, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. When we were once under God's law, and this is a much more positive analogy than the prison analogy, once under God's law, he says, it's like we were under God's protective custody. We weren't free, but we also weren't outside of God's love and mercy because the law, Paul says, was like a guardian to us. Meaning, like a good guardian, the law actually did many things to love and serve and protect us. The law revealed God's character to us. The law showed us what righteousness is. The law restrained and directed our behavior. The law instructed us how to live and how to treat one another. Y'all, the law actually shows us our need for atonement and a system of sacrifice. If you read through the Old Testament, God's already pointing us to something that will allow for sinners to be received by him if sacrifice has been made. It's pointing ahead to Jesus. All sorts of good, wonderful, perfect things that the law represents, that the law is to us, but all of those good things are only meant to point us to one thing, truly. One thing, ultimately. And that is verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law for all of its goodness and perfection and great purpose cannot save us and will not. And therefore, in the end, we are under its curse. Only if we come to Jesus Christ is the true purpose of the law fulfilled in and for us. And so that's what I said a minute ago, that the law is is serving the promise. It's supporting the fulfillment of what God promised 430 years prior. Or to say it positively, the law is our guide, our trainer, our teacher, our guardian, our tutor, all designed to bring us to our Savior. And now that faith has come, Paul says, we are no longer under our tutor. So that brings us back to a question I posed earlier as we close. Does that mean that good behavior counts for nothing? Does that mean that God's law, if we're no longer under the tutor, the law, is God's law irrelevant somehow now? And the answer is no. The, the, the ten, let, let's take the Ten Commandments as most prominent. Y'all, the Ten Commandments still perfectly reflect God's righteousness and our command, our expectation for righteous behavior. Read through them on your own. There's nothing wrong or defective or less than, or obsolete about God's moral law. And that's not Paul's point to say that it doesn't matter how you live, it doesn't matter what you do anymore. No, what he's saying is this. If we are no longer under the tutor, under the law, that means that the law is no longer our grounds for God's acceptance of us. That's what it means. Good behavior and religious activity is not something you can use to put God in your debt. You cannot earn his favor, you were never meant to. Paul is clear, the scripture is clear, we receive God's favor, his blessing, his grace, once and for all forever, by faith in Jesus Christ. And so y'all, I, this, is, this is a question that will have its answer when we get to chapter five, but I don't wanna wait till then because I, I just, it's been nagging me all week, okay? So give me 60 seconds here as we close. I do want to ask this question in relationship to the last one. Okay, we're no longer under the law because faith has come. So what do we do with the law? And again, think about the Ten Commandments, just for clarity's sake. What do we do with it? Is it really irrelevant? Does it really matter? The Bible gives us an answer to that, and it's actually a better answer than we might assume. 1 John chapter 5. John says this. He says, for this is the love of God. This is what it means to love God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. That is such an important scripture. How do we love God? I mean practically, day by day. You can't just feel it in your tummy. How do you love God? What do you do? John answers the question. He says obey him. Obey. Do what he says. Obey his commands. But you notice this little twist there in the narrative. And his commands are not burdensome. And y'all, that is a different category for most of us. Because we can't imagine a law being non-burdensome. A law that does not weigh us down. And yet that's what the scripture says is true now of God's law for the Christian. Because why? We obey him by faith. We obey him in love. We are, y- y'all. You, if you are, if you have trusted Christ, listen. You don't obey God to earn His favor. And you don't obey God to avert His judgment. No, you're not. You're not doing anything now to get in good with God. You're already in. And so now we obey him by faith because we know He's already justified us. Everything that we are, everything that we will be for all eternity, God has already given to us freely in Jesus Christ, just as He promised He would. And so now, y'all, Christian obedience is not a burden to carry. It is a loving, joyful, full-hearted response to the One who has poured out all of His inheritance upon us. All the riches of His mercy and love, and kindness have been given to us freely through Jesus Christ. Who would want to obey God more than someone who has experienced His love that deeply? Y'all, if, you, if, if being a Christian in some twisted way has convinced you that it doesn't matter what you do, God's going to love you anyway, then we have sincerely missed the point. It's God's love that motivates real obedience. Because it's not obedience to earn something for my benefit, it's obedience in response to something that's been given by grace. And therefore, it is obedience from the heart. A non-burdensome, joyful, walking by faith. That's the joy of the Christian life lived out. If you want to love God in response to his love for you, the Bible says, do what he says because everything is yours in Christ already. Y'all, this is the joy that we have as those who know Him. We enter in. We are invited in by grace and never again forced to crawl. We are invited in as sons and daughters, a a gift that we now receive. And as any good father would delight in his children, God delights in those who, receiving him, also delight to obey Him. May that be true of us, His church as we pray. Father, this is a uh, a very dense scripture. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that there would be no, or at least very little, confusion for us. Um, and certainly I ask, Father, that if, if I have failed to clarify or 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 just shine the light where it belongs. That, Lord, by Your Spirit, You would illumine our minds and hearts. And thank You, Father, that that's, that's Your ultimate grace here. It's not the preacher's words, um, but it's Your Word, Father. And so uh, let Your Word take its root in our hearts this morning. And Father, I, just, I pray just especially... For any of us in this room or online in this moment, that we just cannot shake this deep sense of of needing to achieve your favor, your acceptance. It's so deeply ingrained in us that, that, Father, you've given us the rules and I must do them. And that's the only way in. Father, will you, will you reform us this morning? Will you reorient and change us, Father, to see that Lord we are um, we are operating within a prison of our own making in that case? We are, we are, in, we are shut up under sin and we cannot get out by our own doing. And Father, that you'd bring us to the end of ourselves and show us the glory of Jesus who has busted through into the cell, who has come for us, who has brought us out by grace and into freedom through his death and resurrection, through his work, not ours. And Father, I pray this morning that that someone perhaps would would hear that message and it would be maybe even for the first time to hear uh, to see to receive Lord you will not accept the work of our hands and I pray Lord we see that as the greatest gift the greatest blessing there is because you have accepted us on the basis of what Christ has done. And the the, the riches of our inheritance now is promised to us, it's guaranteed, because Christ has earned it for us and has granted it to us. Thank you, Father, for grace. And Father, I pray your grace would transform us, that we would believe in Christ, And now joyfully follow him. Obey his word. Obey your word as a gift and a joy from the heart. Thank you, Father, that in Christ everything is new. And may we, your church, Lord, receive it and live in it. And we ask it in his all-powerful, gracious, and wonderful name. Amen.